Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome back to Some Might Say, Episode 2. This week we are going to bring to you a phone interview that I recently had with Ryan Eris of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And we were speaking about an item that came out of uh, the pages of Provincial Politics a couple weeks ago where a motion was introduced at the party convention to debate the validity of transgender theory in the public school system. This took on a massive presence on social media, conventional media, drew a lot of negative criticism and so we sat down to talk about the implications for culture, for the church and how we should move forward as thoughtful, believing Christians. And so I hope you enjoyed the interview and uh, thanks for listening. All right, Tim Piper, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Ryan, and I, I really appreciate and I feel honored uh, that you have me on today. No, it's a pleasure to have you. Tim, I was, uh, Tim, so Tim, we've been talking about the, uh, the recent uh, Ontario PC party convention that, uh, that took place uh, about a week and a half ago. And um, so just, uh, just for, for some of our listeners' sakes, so at, this, uh, at this convention, uh, Tanya Granick allen she put forward a motion regarding um, opening up the debate about uh, transgender theory and trans identity uh, as, as part of the Ontario Public School sex ed curriculum. That's and, right. Uh, and th this is something that, uh, that you've been following pretty closely. Can you just, uh, just lay out why this is, uh, why this is something that's, uh, that's important? Well, so this hit the news with a pretty heavy impact, as you said, a week and a half ago. It was a weekend event, and Tina Granite Allen, who has been in the news before, in fact, she was a um, contender for the um, Conservative Party leadership. Um, that snap, that snap leadership race that took place, and um, she was one of the more outspoken candidates. Um, she certainly speaks her mind, and uh, she's now the head of a nonprofit organization called Parents as first educators, which represents around 80,000 parents in Ontario. So not a small group, not a fringe group. And uh, as far as I can tell, she's been removed from the Conservative Party um, as, a, as a caucus member, right. uh, which is significant. Um, this, this took place uh, last year over some controversial, in, in their words, controversial remarks that she made. But she's still a member of the party, a private member. She's a... She's a, um, a, a delegate, I suppose. And so she, at the convention from the floor, introduced a series of motions. And the one that's catching all the attention was the motion to debate uh, transgender theory, um, as, as you said, as part, of the, uh, as part of the curriculum. And this caught the attention on social media and conventional media, uh, particularly by the, uh, the left-leaning parties, the liberals, and the ADP spoke uh, really heavily against this. They called it regressive. They called it dangerous and reckless and uh, bigoted. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so it passed with uh, near unanimous support. Uh, and that's from that's not just from her mouth. That's from uh, many who were there and who were able to vote on it. And so it's not, it's not binding policy, but it does introduce an idea for the party to take it to their next convention to actually see it go through as a debate, which in theory, could end up as being official party policy. But as of right now, it's just a uh, party convention. Uh, it's an in-house uh, debate. And so it's important because it kind of shows, um, I think, part of what's going on 
with the political direction of our province, as we saw the Liberals were defeated, the majority government came in, um, and ideas are now being debated, which really haven't received any airtime or any public attention in, well, a long time. Right. Right. So, so just to uh, just to back up a couple of steps here, mm-hmm. um, this uh, this motion is significant for a couple of reasons, and uh, not least of which is uh, the current uh, sex ed curriculum that was brought in under the uh, the previous uh, Ontario Liberal government, Kathleen Wynne and uh, Deputy Education Minister Benjamin Levin, and that uh, that itself is. Uh, is, is quite a story. Uh, can you just uh, can you just lay out where uh, where we're at, what we're and what Tanya um, Granik Allen, what parents of first educators are are pushing against here? Right. And now Tanya Granik Allen has sort of been unfairly marked as um, a solo a journeyman against this cause. But if you look back at the um, the leadership debate for the Conservative Party, dating back more than a year now, or about a year. We saw all the party candidates push back against this. And, in fact, Doug Ford himself went as far as to say that he went across the whole province talking to parents. And in, in his words, he said uh, that parents are sick and tired of liberal ideology being shoved down our throats. Those were his words. And he's come out so far as to, as to denounce and, uh, and dismiss this motion. And he's going to do everything in his power to stop it from reaching debate. So we've seen a significant uh, flop on Ford's part. Now that he's in leadership, now that he's got a, a base to protect and he's got votes to count. So you can see part of that going on. But the, what these what these constituents and delegates are pushing against is the, the fast tracking and the unanimous acceptance of transgender theory as it's currently stated. And you can find a lot of that on the Human Rights Commission commentary that the Liberal, gov- or the, that the liberal government had created. And I can't tell if it's still up now. I don't know if the Conservatives brought it down to, be, to edit it. But a lot of what's now being pushed in school in terms of gender identity is that everybody has the right, this is in the, the language of the Human Rights Commission, everyone has the right to determine their own identity. Uh, and that's, that's problematic on a lot of levels. It's problematic on a religious level. It's problematic on a scientific level. And it's problematic in terms of when you talk about rights, you're introducing a concept that that needs to be relativized. Everybody has rights, um, but they need to be categorized and prioritized relative to other rights. And so it's really this idea in terms of this motion to to revisit what's being taught and to revisit especially in the, it's, the leftist parties really picked up on this gender identity part. This is the piece that they're really contending with. Now, but, you know, when different types of sex are taught at different ages. That's part of the curriculum, too, that needs to be revisited. But really what they're focusing on is whether or not we as a society, as a community, agree with the idea that somebody can determine by their own volition their perceived identity and then express it as such, and whether or not this is something we want to celebrate as a society or something whether or not we want to help curtail and, and, and deal with in a more scientific and, I think, uh, naturally reasonable and logical way. And so they're really pushing against the idea that um, anybody can do and say whatever they feel um, inwardly. And, and the science just lies in the face of that being a legitimate scientific practice. The College of Pediatrics calls um, gender 
And so we're picking up on some of these themes that we're saying we need to bring in some more voices. As you said, the uh, the current curriculum was designed by um, an open homosexual, and what later became what we found out to be was a convicted um, child pornography abuser. And so that's problematic on a practical level. Um, yeah. And you look at what's being taught to our kids, and so it's it's interesting that you brought that up because these two, the deputy education minister and our former premier, uh, were particularly um, motivated to push this curriculum through. And so these these groups are wanting to address some of those things that might have gone through without enough scrutiny, without enough consultation, and certainly without scientific um, information. Yeah. So Tim, maybe uh, I I don't know. So Tim, the sorry, I'm just trying to figure out the best way to phrase this question. Um, I guess the, the theological um, the theological implications of this are pretty plain to see, uh, and uh, and are not uh, not necessarily new, but uh, but you're coming at this uh, from a uh, from from a perspective that it's actually like it's actually the science that backs this up. It's not that here's a religious perspective that we're trying that um, conservatives are trying to to uh, slam down on society. Like sure, if uh, this is a a scientifically and uh, physiologically untenable position in the long term. Is that absolutely fair to say? Absolutely. And one of the biggest problems with this is that. This is how it's being framed as um, opposers of this debate. Again, they're calling it regressive and reckless and dangerous, as if as if to say just debating this idea is is destructive and hateful and exclusive and intolerant and the like. And it's being framed as if it's an ideological position um, that is simply mean. Uh, and and that and Tim Grinnegallen said that. The reason why this is entering debate, or that it has to, is because their current trans uh, uh, theory she calls unscientific yeah. and contentious, or highly controversial. She is absolutely correct in saying that. That's not an ideological position. That's a scientific one, and that's in line with very reputable scientific organizations, especially ones that deal with children, where I think this debate is, is seeing the most heat. And so it's, it's crazy to think that this is just the religious right um, trying to impose some kind of traditional view on the rest of society. Um, some of the other concerns coming out were that, well, this is dragging us backwards. You know, this is, uh, this is not, um, his name is, uh, he's one of the, I think he's one of the liberal MPPs. And he said, I'm just trying to find it here. He said something to the to the, the effect that this is not in keeping with where the world is going and not in keeping with where Ontario is going. And so that's the problem. Well that's a very that's a very fluid reference point. This is not in keeping with where the province is going. Well I mean the the boat goes where the wind blows. I don't that's not a very he doesn't have science to appeal to. He doesn't have uh, transcendent authority to appeal to. He just says this is where people are going and so the people who are not going that way must be wrong. 
And so, of course, of course, the theological implications are there, but we don't even need to resort to that on a surface level. All we need to do is to resort to atheist doctors who are saying, this is not even a reasonable or prudent position. We're, we're putting children in harm's way by, by wholesale adopting these, these philosophies. And so I, this is why I think um, this needs to get – we need to win the, the terminology argument before we can win the theological one. I think we need to expose this idea for what it is and, and criticize the, the opposition to it by saying, name some good reason why we shouldn't have a reasonable and adult conversation about this. And I don't think we're seeing that. Yeah, totally. And uh, if, if, you look, uh, if you look online um, at, uh, at just some of, some of the responses, like there are actually like atheist, um, queer, uh, LGBT, even uh, like some people who are who identify as transgender themselves, they're coming out, and they're like, and these are scholars, and they're saying like this, it's a bad idea to be teaching mm -hmm. this in the schools. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, right. It's true. There, there's, there's nowhere near unanimous consent that this is the best way to deal with this issue. And again, people want to say, well, the conservatives want to write us out of existence. That's absolutely untrue. Nobody is saying that this, this disorder or this issue doesn't exist. Nobody is saying we don't want a compassionate response to those who experience gender dysphoria. I mean, that, that's critical and important, especially for us as Christians. We don't have the option other than being kind and receiving and loving and, and, and even inclusive in terms, of, in terms of our lives. But that, that, that doesn't mean handing people rights that, that are more made up than, than even these gender expressions that they're saying. I mean, the, the church has to extend uh, a, a hospitable reception to people of, of every background and every disorder and every sin and every... Um, issue and everything, but it, but we don't do that by saying you're free to do what you want. Um, that I mean that just goes against the grain of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God and to belong to God's people. And so, right, I mean this just flies in the face of um, biology and philosophy um, and religion and and even logic. And so, um, I, I'm thankful it's getting attention, and I just think that right now the momentum that's being um, built up, I think. People need to, and this is why this issue is important to me, but I want to give people the words, the background, the knowledge to be able to answer the criticisms that we're hearing. Because, again, to be called regressive and dangerous and reckless and, and hateful and exclusive, and one, one Ontario mother said um, that it's discriminatory and hateful. She said debates like this are discriminatory and hateful. Um, that's wild to me that you would consider a debate as being discriminatory. The yeah. whole idea of a, the whole idea of a debate is to is to test an idea uh, over and against other ideas, and and if an idea is true, then it will prove itself. I mean, that's the whole notion of a debate, right? And so to say it's hateful or discriminatory to test an idea, it just shows where we are at in terms of this. Well, I would call it a sacred. It's our sacred cow right now. It's sort of your mark of inclusion into uh, the public square right now is to uh, to wholesale endorse this ideology. And Christians, I, I don't think we have to do that to be intellectually accepted. Um, we need to prove the We need to prove the value and the validity of what we're saying, uh, not by not by just you know emotionally reacting to it and saying, well, that's all baloney, because it's not. 
but we have to be informed and we have to be loving and we have to be seasoned as we speak. And, and that's part of it. I think why this conversation between you and I is so important um, because we need to learn how to speak into this issue in a thoughtful and informed way so that we don't, it's not, it's not so easy to just shout us off the stage, uh, so to speak, because I think we have a voice in the public square right now that's incredibly important, especially when you consider that these are minors and youth uh, um, dealing with these issues. I, I have family who works at uh, the Children's Hospital here in Ottawa, and um, she says that there, there's an increase, there's a, a visible increase in the number of children coming in for uh, hormonal therapy or um, irreversible physical surgeries to remove sexual organs and breasts. And I mean, this is when you're doing, when you're talking about minors going through irreversible and uh, and and chemically irreversible procedures. It's not enough to just say, "Oh, it's hateful not to talk about it." I mean, we have to because lives hang in the balance. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Tim, like you're you're a pastor. You've got uh, you've got care for you've got you've got souls under your care, and mm. this like this is a heavy responsibility. Mm. Um, what do you uh, what do you see are, are some of the the ways? Um, what do you see are some of the ways that Christians um, that churches can can engage with this uh, this very public conflict? Like this is uh, right. You just, you just mentioned that you're seeing people, probably some church-going people, um, are taking their kids in for these kinds of irreversible procedures. What is, the, right. what is the responsibility of the pastor and of the church community right, uh, in, the, in the face of this? Well, I think we need to recognize that the tactics have been to really philosophically handcuff any opposition to, this, to, to current theory. And to say, we define what is loving, and anybody who would challenge that, it, it's the same thing. I mean, we lost the language debate in the same-sex same sex marriage debate, where it was just called, it was called unloving. We lost the language debate. That had nothing to do with the validity of ideas. It had everything to do with who's more loving. And if you can define love, then you can define the argument. And I think Christians seem to recognize that we are in the same process of being philosophically handcuffed. And, and we're losing that debate at, at the beginning. And so this is why, um, as a pastor, I'm concerned with um, with not addressing it. Because, I mean, a lot of people, our response is just, well, let's pray more, let's read our Bibles more, let's be kind, mm-hmm. uh, but let's never talk about this because we just don't know how to without people calling us hateful. Or, or we don't even know how to talk about it without sounding hateful or ignorant. And so we need to become versed in the language. We need to become versed in, in the theory and then be able to use our Bibles and our brains um, along with um, God's revelation in nature to to come at these issues in a loving way. And so my goal is to bring this out and say, look, this is a real issue. People really suffer with this. Um, it's not... It's not, any, it's not any more wrong that people suffer with this than it is wrong that you suffer with your lust or you, you struggle with a loose tongue or whatever. I mean, these are issues that we deal with as, as humans. We can't, we can't demonize people that we feel fit into some category that's a little bit more foreign to us. We, we just need to learn it 
Mm-hmm. We need to become versed in it, and we need to speak the biblical narrative onto their lives and give them hope, give them hope that that self-realization is not the path to satisfaction. Self-realization, even for the heterosexual or for the um, securely financially stable person, self-realization is never the path to human freedom. And Adam and Eve found that out the hardware, where Satan said, you, know, you will be as God, you will know good and evil. You, you know, you will determine your life for yourself. You will be self-determined. And it ended in death. And, and we're facing that same temptation over and over again. And so we need to recognize that self-determination, self-realization only finds its true reality in submission to God. And the Proverbs say that humility comes before honor. In the biblical sense, humility is to submit to God and to say, look, I, I know I see things my way, but show me your way. David said in the song, acquit me of my hidden faults. And so to recognize that we don't see the whole picture and to bring in God's narrative and say, this is the truth. And in our day, it's issues that we might not be familiar with or, or comfortable with, but it doesn't excuse us from um, from addressing them. And so as a, as a pastor, you know, we need to say, this is our time. God didn't have us grow up in 1950. God did not have us in the 1890s. You know, this is our, this is our turf. This is our time to fight. And, uh, and we'll do it with love. And I pray that we do it faithfully and biblically because, um, we're only given one cultural moment. You know, we are on this earth for, um, for a breath. And, uh, and we want to be found faithful to God's word, uh, regardless of what the stakes are. And they, they do seem high, no doubt. No, totally. Um, I really love what you just said. Uh, two of the things that you just said, that, uh, that this is our moment, this is our fight, this is our turf. That, um, how, do you, uh, how do you understand that? How do you apply that, and uh, the, uh, the language of fighting for this, um, for the truth, in a context where you've also said rightly that people who are struggling with with gender dysphoria, people who are unsure of what gender they're in, mm-hmm. uh, they like you're not saying that they are the enemy. We need to minister mm-hmm. to those people with with love and compassion and pastoral care. Mm-hmm. Um, so where where are we actually fighting here? That's a great question. And, and I think, again, that's where Christians need to be laser clear with how we speak. Um, because we are, you know, the, the so-called social conservative movement is being called the enemy of progress and the enemy of those who are suffering and writing people out of existence and ignoring them and all these kinds of things. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. What we're trying to say is that the answer to these, um, to gender dysphoria and gender confusion, these, these real, uh, is it, I mean, I don't, I don't know the, the full science, but whether it's physiological or mental, and um, the College of Pediatrician says that, it, that a person in the developmental process, the awareness of gender can be derailed by a child's subjective perceptions or relationships or adverse experiences. And so these things don't come out of a vacuum. They come through life, and, and, and we all know we walk through life and we we bump up into things, and, and there's abuse, and there's terrible realities that uh, we need to address, and they cause our minds to become warped. And again, but but who has the answer? You know, we believe that God has the answer in His Word. And when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and I just think of this in our time, He said, "Those people don't know their right hand from their left." 
I mean, when you think about that, this is God having compassion on a people. And the reason why Jonah didn't want to go is because he thought that they deserved condemnation. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a church, if you think that people who don't dress the way that you're comfortable with or maybe maybe they're expressing their gender dysphoria in a way that makes you uncomfortable and all you want to see them is judged, that's the spirit of Jonah. And God popped them into a whale and threw them back to Nineveh. And he said, no, I, I'm sending you to these people. And so the church is, and it, like this group is enlarging as we speak. It's growing, and so it's becoming easier and easier to find these people, and especially among youth. I mean, this is happening uh, pre-pubescently. Stats show that 80% of gender dysphoria um, is totally gone by the time it's an individual is age 20. And so this, this battle is happening with our youth. It's happening with the next generation. So the church's focus needs to be to engage this community, to love them, to bring them in, and to speak truth to them. And, and to reorient their minds towards towards God's truth and God's narrative and God's plan for the world. And, and it doesn't mean that we can fix every problem or heal every disease. Um, that's in God's hands. But we can certainly minister as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ the truth to these people. And frankly, it's those who would uh, coddle them and wrap them in their own self-determination. These are the people we need to go after. The sound-minded um, policymakers and adults and educators and, and so-called philosophers, these are the ones that we need to take the fight to and, 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 take back the, and take back the generation of our youth because these are the ones who are being misled. They're being misled by right-minded, middle-aged, you know, for the most part, highly successful people. And they're the ones trying to block even therapies or, um, you know, regenerative um, treatment from these people, they're trying, to, they're trying to put walls up between the transgender community and those who would seek to help. Not to ignore or to hate them, but to help them. And so, I, yeah, as you said, the, the fight is, I think, with the, the more public figure. And, and certainly those who are vocal uh, within the transgender community, there, there's certainly a lot of hate pushed back towards um, the Christian community or the traditional sexual view. Um, but it doesn't mean that we respond with hate. It means that we respond with love and with truth and with persistence. Um, because it's easy to give up and say, well, that's the way that they want to go. Um, but that's not the spirit of a prophet. Uh, the spirit of a prophet is to just speak until God uh, takes our tongues out of our mouth, you know, until he shuts us up, um, then then we'll call to be a prophetic witness to the world. And so we don't, as I said before, we don't have the luxury of, of choosing battles that aren't really there. We need to sneak into the issues that are right in front of us. Yeah, Totally. Um, I think uh, I think one of, one of the uh, or one of the one of the tactics is, that's right in front of us uh, for for Christians is get your kids out of the public school, get them out of this anti-God um, sex-ed curriculum. Mm-hmm. Like if we had if we we got up tomorrow um, and. Every Christian parent in Ontario said, "No more. Like we're done. We're we're done with the public school. We're done with with state-funded, state-indoctrinated um, curriculum. We're we're taking our kids out. Like overnight, public school systems couldn't sustain this. Mm. One of the things." Tammy Grandacallan also pointed out 
no, sorry, it wasn't Team Green Economy, but it was there's a there's another coalition called the Coalition for Life, I think, which is also um, prominent in the Conservative Party. They estimate that somewhere between 40 and 70 percent of those in the Conservative Party are social conservatives. So it, it speaks to the reality, I think, that you're talking about, that, that there are much larger numbers um, who don't subscribe to um, the current expression of, of trans um, theory. And so you're, you're right that, that one of the leverage points that we do have is the education system because it's funded based on numbers, heads, you know, thumbs and seats, as it were. Um, yeah. They depend on, on students. Um, and, and I... You know, maybe there's an opt-out clause that parents can look to and say, well, you know, my child doesn't have to go through this, so I'll just isolate them from this one part that is visibly and outwardly anti-God. But what we have to recognize is that, and I think what what you already have and what the Ezra Institute is promoting is, is a, a holistic worldview um, that either serves the living God or denies him. Uh, his place as God, and just because it pops up in one little like, area that makes you uncomfortable, oh, sexual identity, that's how, that's anti-God, so I'll bring my child out of that. But the whole rest of the curriculum denies the worship of Christ, denies the reality of God, and, but it, but maybe it's more under the surface, and so parents, I think, are a lot more uh, laid back and a lot more comfortable with and sort of still trusting of what you describe as the same school system. Yeah, and I, I think it's true. As Christian parents, we need to look a lot harder at the holistic worldview being offered by uh, state-run schools and say, is this the education? Is this the, is this the rearing of a Christian child, of a Christian mind? You know, the Proverbs begin addressing youth. Um, our greatest responsibility in church and in families is to educate uh, children and, and to bring them up with the fear and knowledge of the Lord. And we ask ourselves, well, is the state school doing that? You know, and we don't depend on state schools to educate our children in the Lord anyway, but are we, are we shooting ourselves in the foot by shipping them off six hours, seven hours a day, and then when they come home, hoping that our dinner time devotions are going to correct all the thinking that they're getting in school? Because the truth is, I mean, math, geography, history, these are all being reworked in terms of uh, class struggle and all being reworked in terms of um, the new revolution, and uh, I mean, now elements of the feminist revolution are just completely embedded in, in, uh, in education. It's no longer debated, right? So we need to look at that and say, is this, are our children, are we exposing them to things that are basically pulling their minds away from faith in God? And you're right, I mean, where where's the battle? I mean, how long are we going to pay for education that destroys Chasing God, and I think that's a hard question that the, the, the Christian Church needs to ask itself, and we need to ask what the solution is going forward because again, this is not a small discussion. No, absolutely. And like every, every time, like you or I, as a parent, every time we send our kids to learn under anyone, any time we send them to piano lessons, any time we send them fishing with their grandparents, any time. Mm-hmm we send them through the doors of the public school. We're saying, on some level, learn from this person, obey this person, in, in some way be like this person. It's a transfer of authority. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. Yeah, and, and you know, we at our church, we have, uh, we have a children, you know, educate, a Sunday school program. 
one of the things that we make our mandate in our Sunday school program is that we, we aim to assist parents in the rearing of their children. I mean, it's great if somebody else can do it once a week on, on a Sunday morning, but parents are the first educators of children. And, again, if you brought in somebody who completely disregarded everything you taught your child and said, hey, you know, Johnny, you're going to be with Mr. Smith all day, and I want you to respect him, I want you to be polite, and all the things that we hope our Christian children would do. Yeah. Well, how are we, how is little Johnny going to filter the things that Mr. Smith is saying when we told him, respect him, obey him, um, you know, listen along and, and, and be respectful in your lessons? How is a child going to filter that out? I mean, yeah. where are the tools of discernment? And, you know, we, talk, we hear parents say, well, my child needs to be a light to the world, you know, like a, like salt and light. And you think five, six, seven years old, you don't have missionaries. You have little sponges. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, send them off to college, you know, where where this stuff is happening, the battles are raging. Send them off to college once their minds have been built up and in sound reason, seasoned speech. And absolutely, I'm all for that. Not for I'm not for isolationists, but I am for taking a child who does not know their right hand from their left and, and not throwing them where the battle is raging and saying, hey, go be a light and a salt with with what, right? And, and so we, we definitely need to do a better job at, I think, taking this taking this right back in-house and saying, we are going to educate our children. We are going to be the ones who is shaping the next generation. Because right now, the state is shaping the next generation. And, and we as we members in the church are saying, have our little minds as well. Add, add them to your numbers. Because we are, we are badly losing young people out of the church. And it's not because the church does not speak the truth. It's because the church speaks the truth in isolation and at the same time says, yeah, you can go learn from the anti-God um, establishment and then just trusting that they're the seeds that we planted are going to And we're losing that badly. And so I think that the church needs to reintroduce the mandate to educate um, to, into our practice. We need to say, it's actually our job to educate the population. To educate children, to be you know, the voice of, of reason and sound doctrine. And as Jesus said, to disciple the nation, to subdue the nations under the knowledge of the Lord. That's right. And, That's right. and our Right. And instead, we're saying to the states and the schools, you can take the responsibility from us because we're kind of busy funding a new yeah. building or, you know, we have, you know, the homeless issues and other good things, but. But what is the what is the essence of the Great Commission? It's Christian education, and so I'm thankful, you know, to see things like this, you know, this debate pop up and say, you know, let's let's debate the merit of it. But but the, the church can't shy away from it. I think that's what ties these two ideas together. Is that I think we need to seize on cultural moments uh, in order to speak into them um, while people are listening. And I think ideas do speak for themselves. I mean, that's the, the economy of, uh, it's, it's the thought, capitalism for thought, I guess. You know, we hope that bad ideas die and that good ideas thrive. And mm-hmm. so the, we, we, we want to be well-equipped to speak into uh, to, to these issues from an early age in our children, you know, right up to, uh, to the sound-minded adult. Because um, people, not only within our church, but within our communities, they are our responsibility to uh, to have spoken the truth to, 
And uh, the last thing we want is to be is us a little church that's in isolation, and we sing our songs on Sunday, and we like our coffee, and we're, we have comfy chairs to sit in, and, you know, and that's kind of the full extent of our Christian mission. Um, it, it certainly isn't. And, and so uh, I was just identifying what is, what's the biggest threat facing that culture right now? What are those threats? I'm not saying necessarily this is the greatest one, but it certainly is a big one. No, for sure. Absolutely. Now, Tim, this uh, this has been a great conversation and really enlightening and uh, a bit of a bit of an exhortation just for for Christians to pay a bit of attention to the political process. Mm. Um, before I let you go, can you just uh, can you recommend a couple of resources um, for for people who want to do some further reading on this? Uh, where would you where would you send them? Well, I spend a lot of time um, just online looking at some of the some, what some of the bigger institutions are saying. One of the things that I think that could be one of the greatest weapons in the hands of a Christian right now is, is the American College of Pediatrics, Pediatricians, I'm sorry. Um, and they put in an eight-point statement on um, gender theory and how it applies to children. Um, that's incredibly powerful, uh, much more so than I think we give credit for. And so we don't want to ignore, you know, so-called secular institutions when what they're saying is scientifically backed. And so that's, that's one thing that I would uh, put forward. I mean, I would, you would do a lot better at this, but I would just recommend a lot of what um, uh, Joseph Boot had said on this. He's spoken really clearly on um, the theological origin of man and, mm-hmm. and how that still is binding on us today. As, as human beings, as men and women, as biological creatures, we are the creation of a living God. And so I would just, you know, I mean, along with this podcast, maybe maybe you'd like to post a few um, articles from Jubilee. I, I, most of what I have learned has just come through that that filter. Um, yeah, just familiar. Yeah, linking linking a biological path to the issues that we're dealing with today. And I would say that there is no coincidence that as we have marched away from God, we have seen um, these big monoliths kind of come crumbling down. Things that we once thought were solid, um, like like chromosomes, are now being called into question. And it, it, it's no coincidence that this falls in line with the walking away from acknowledgement of God um, as as the sole Creator and the sole Lord of, of all the of all the earth. And so, really, Christian, there's there's so much good Christian material out there right now. Um, there's a lot of bad too. There's a lot of Christians who, who want to come across as loving, they want to come across as inclusive, and they struggle with how am I going to be accepted in the public square? And so we said, well, maybe we don't want to, maybe let's not fight this fight. Let's let them in, let's say it's legitimate, and then they'll get saved and then they'll see the truth. Well, it's not going to work that way. And so we need to be very wary of those who are saying, yeah, this is not our battle. Our battle is to introduce them to Jesus. But you, you set a dangerous precedent um, for the church and for discipleship thereafter um, if, you're, if you're so fortunate to introduce them to Christ. And so, yeah, there, I, I think it's a matter of discernment. I mean, you, there's no – I don't have a lot of resources on the top of my head, but it certainly is a matter for discernment for the church. Um, and it goes everything from, you know, kind of far-right hatred and bigotry, and we don't want to subscribe to that, all the way to full-blown syncretism and – yeah, kind of anything goes as long as you love Jesus. 
and that doesn't work either. And so, um, yeah, I, I love what the Ezra Institute is doing and, and pointing the church, I think, in the right direction from a scholarship perspective and from a writing and uh, speaking perspective. And so I would just point people back to you guys if I if somebody were to ask, I certainly don't have any original thinking on this whatsoever, but I but I appreciate the uh, the question, right? No, thanks uh, thanks for that. Well, Tim, uh, thanks a lot for uh, for your perspective. We'll be praying for you and for uh, for your ministry at Evergreen Chapel. Uh, we're uh, we're thankful for uh, for just for pastors who are willing to to get up and and speak on this issue and. Uh, and just demonstrate that this is uh, this is something for the Christian Church to, uh, to concern itself with. Absolutely, and uh, you know I think you guys are doing great work. I, I appreciate um, the podcast. I know it's been a, a blessing to, to many, and uh, for me to be a voice on it is just an incredible honor. And I just pray that yeah, God God is going to get the honor and the glory. I think when things get as as dark as they're becoming. It's the greatest opportunity for the church to be a light. And so my final word would just be, Christian, be encouraged and be be optimistic because these are the moments when the church can truly shine the glory and the beauty of Christ um, into the darkest places. And so I I think uh, we're on the right track and there there are many like-minded Christians and pastors and leaders all across this nation, especially in Ontario as well. And uh, things things are definitely looking up. And... (laughs) I don't say that tongue in cheek. I, I really do mean it. So thank you, Ryan, uh, for what you do at the Ezra Institute and for all those there who are making the gears turn. Uh, we appreciate you even out here in the far reaches of eastern Ontario. <laughs> That's great. Thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. We will we'll see you again, Ryan, I'm sure. So there you have it my interview with Ryan Aris of the Ezra Institute. You can see their website at ezrainstitute.ca. Very important voice in Canadian Christianity right now. And thanks for listening. We appreciate you being with us today. So, stay cool. We'll see you soon.